So when you're eating something like that, you just don't wolf it down. You really got to think about how amazing the animal is. And sort of once you have a, a sort of a respect for the animal, uh, then you want to protect it. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. If fish were like cars, tuna would be the Ferraris of the ocean. Sleek, powerful and made for speed. Their torpedo-shaped bodies streamline their movement through the water and their special swimming muscles enable them to cruise the ocean highways with great efficiency. Tuna are remarkable and impressive wild animals. The northern bluefin can reach five metres in length and weigh as much as a tonne, more than a horse. Their specialised body shape, fins and scales enable some species of tuna to, f- to swim as fast as 70 kilometres per hour. Over 20 metres, they will leave a Ferrari in their wake. Tuna swim incredible distances as they migrate. Some tuna are born in Indonesia, travel across the entire Pacific to feed off the coast of South America and then swim all the way back to Indonesia to breed. These extraordinary marine animals are also integral to the diet of millions of people and are both the most commercially valuable and highly traded fish on the planet. Commercial tuna fisheries represent a significant part of the blue economy, with the seven species yellowfin, skipjack, big eye, albacore and Atlantic, Pacific and southern bluefin the most valuable fishes on the planet. In 2020, commercial fishing vessels landed about 5.2 million metric tonnes of the seven species, with an estimated wharf value of over 12 billion US dollars. Many of the social, financial and environmental problems we are facing as a global society can be traced back to the complex and sometimes corrupt systems that have evolved to bring us our food. The tuna industry, as the largest traded seafood commodity on the planet, is especially subject to difficulty in tracing the supply and managing quality. One of the world's leading tuna authorities is Australia's Dr Alastair Douglas. Dr Tuna, as I like to call him, is as passionate about the conservation of this amazing animal as he is about eating it. He uses his unique knowledge of tuna from water to plate to build catching, data collection and trading systems which offer a next generation to the sustainable trade of tuna. I'm Alistair Douglas. I'm the uh, founder and partner of uh, HMile Technologies, which is a Singapore-based company uh, with a team that's uh, global. Um, but I'm making the move back to Australia in July. I, I was actually born in the uh, UK, in Bournemouth. Um, that was in the British Army. So I, I grew up uh, landlocked in Germany during the Cold War. Um, I didn't really see the ocean at all. Uh, we emigrated to Australia when I was just going on eight years old and uh, saw the ocean really for the first time and fell in love with it and um, also fell in love with fishing and, and whatnot and uh, went on to study marine science, marine biology at James Cook University and I majored in uh, fisheries and uh, aquaculture uh, and also did uh, studies in Japanese. Um, I really sort of fell in love with tuna uh, at that time. I found them pretty fascinating from, you know, a physiological perspective, biology. Um, and and then I, I found them fascinating from a socioeconomic perspective as well uh, in the fisheries and, and, and how interesting uh, and how important it was uh, to protect them but also to, to you know, 
make sure that we're maximizing our return on investment that we have in the industry, and particularly the southern bluefin tuna industry. And uh, I went on to do postgraduate research in Port Lincoln with the farming industry that's down there. And that took me to Japan uh, to continue my research at Tokyo University of Fisheries uh, in collaboration with uh, Flinders University. Um, and, and then after that, I ended up uh, setting up a company to import tuna into Japan uh, and sell it on auction floors around the country um, and direct sell it. And uh, then set up similar operations in uh, the United Kingdom and in Singapore. For many, an introduction to tuna that is not canned comes in the form of an ubiquitous piece of tuna sushi. Whether taken from a revolving sushi train in a suburban shopping centre or being presented in a high-end temple of gastronomy by a sushi sun, the influence on tuna consumption by this staple of Japanese food is significant. Tuna consumptions in all markets outside of Japan has tripled in the past 15 years. I'd argue that this is a direct reflection of how sushi and sashimi have infiltrated popular Western culinary culture. In Japan, tuna holds an almost religious appeal. It is as respected as it is sought after. Yeah, I, I, I mean, they've have, they have records of consum- consuming tuna in middens, I think, in, from the 8th century. Um, they, uh, you know, sushi was a, a street food um, originally, and it, tuna wasn't really highly regarded uh, back in the day because it, it requires some expertise and some cold chain, um, and so it wasn't really a, a you know, highly regarded fish. In fact, um, a lot of people don't realise that skipjack tuna, the stuff that we stick in tins. Um, was the most valuable tuna species uh, back in the day um, because it goes off quickly. Uh, and getting it into Kyoto, the, the sort of internal capital at the time, um, required a lot of expense, if you like, and only the uh, feudal lords and um, the well-to-do people, the well-heeled people, if you like, or, or the well-getted, if you, if you use Japanese uh, sandals as an example, um, could afford it. Um, and then uh, bluefin tuna, um, I, I met some old boys at Skiji Fish Markets in Tokyo there and, and the sushi restaurants around uh, the markets that um, in, in back in the day remember throwing away the belly, uh, the, the, the belly flap that we uh, now sell for about $300 a kilogram. They used to feed it to the cats. Um, it was considered uh, just too oily. Um, and then um, after the war, uh, the introduction of uh, fast food, they sort of blamed the uh, fatu- infatuation with uh, the, t- the belly, the, the high-fat part of the tuna on, on the West for introducing all this sort of fatty food. Um, and that's when it sort of took off in, in value and the, the bluefins tuna species uh, were being much you know, highly sought after uh, around the time that I was born. Uh, in the early 1970s. Arguably the most revered marketplace for seafood in the world, Tokyo's famous fish market, Skiji, is indeed as mysterious as it is overwhelming. A law unto itself, it is a place that defies interpretation. Although moved to a new location in Toyosu, 
in the outer suburbs of Tokyo. It remains the most important single place for seafood in the world. Over 3 million kilograms, with a worth of over 30 million US dollars of seafood, is traded daily, with nearly 50% of that value sold in tuna alone. It's claimed that the Tokyo fish market is the engine that drives the global tuna industry. When I first went to Skizia, I think there were over 2,000 intermediary wholesalers, and now there's uh, around about 600 uh, in Toyosu, which is the new market where Skizia uh, had to move to. Uh, but essentially, you have uh, importers um, that obviously bring the fish in. Um, it's interesting because from tax perspective, because we don't know what the value is pre-auction. So you have to have a deposit uh, with the government, if you like, um, through the transportation companies uh, to make sure you can pay your tax when the, when the, the price is settled. But essentially, you, um, you grade the tuna. Um, and... Uh, there's technicians at Narita Airport that go to, to meet the tuna to do so and then decide where they're going to send what quality of fish based on supply to those auction markets around the country. Um, Skiji is obviously or was the, the premier market, so that's the best quality fish would go there. Um, and they go to what's called New Gagesha, uh, which are the auctioneers. Um, I was working very closely with the, the very first one set up by the government called Koichi. And regulated by the government, it's a 5% commission um, that they receive when they auction the fish off. Now, the best fish uh, are lined up first all the way through uh, and, a, and a top species. So it'll be from northern bluefin, then southern bluefin, and then you'll have big eye, and then you'll have yellowfin tuna. Um, and the high-quality ones are further up uh, that start off the auction. And the wholesalers who have a licence, then they come in uh, anywhere from about 4 in the morning um, 4.30 in the morning to grade the fish, um, both the, the frozen and the chilled. Um, and, you know, based on the orders that they've got, uh, the supply that's available there, they'll sort of figure out what's a good price to pay for it uh, and bid for it on the auction accordingly. Um, they then have it and they cut it up in their little stores. And they have it until 10 a.m. to make a claim on it just in case there's, there's a, a quality issue. Um, but then it's uh, distributed out to the, uh, the sushi restaurants and the retailers from there. Like any premium food or wine, fresh tuna is priced based on how it is graded. This is especially true for the mighty bluefin tuna headed to the sushi kitchens of the world, where appearance and taste are scrutinised by every bite. Grading tuna is at once a science, an art and a talent. The sheer number of variables and possible outcomes are pretty much endless. Add to this the subjectivity of buyers' personal preferences for certain culinary applications, and things get even trickier. Ultimately, when it comes to grading fresh tuna for the sashimi market, it takes an intuition and a talent built on countless thousands of experiences to deliver accuracy and consistency. It also takes a degree of zen awareness. Yeah, so uh, the... uh... The, the tuna uh, set up, there'll be a core taken out of uh, the fish because the tuna have a, what's called a reet marab, where they have a, a counter current system or arrangement of the, the vascular system where they're trapping heat uh, into their body and it gives them uh, efficiencies for swimming. They're, they're super fast um, uh, and the heat helps with that. Like we warm up our muscles before we sprint or run. Um, 
Uh, but the, the, the double-edged sword there is that they can overheat and they can cook themselves uh, and drop. they build up the lactic acid and the pH drops and that denatures the proteins uh, in the flesh and causes um, what's known as tuna burn. And so they have to core uh, the fish, uh, take a sample out like a cheese corer, and they put that on top of the fish for the, the buyers to examine. Um, other buyers will come in uh, on the tail. They will take a look at the tail. Um, sometimes they will take a small sample to rub in their hands, especially with the frozen tuna. Um, you'll see the guys with a, a hook and they'll be whacking the fish in the side uh, and how much that hook goes in tells them how much fat's on the tuna. The softer the flesh, the more the hook goes in and they sort of can detect that down to micromillimetres, just like the wool graders. Um, and then they'll, they'll, they'll take a chunk of flesh, they'll heat it up in their hand, they'll use a torch, and they'll look for the, the tuna bloom. That's where the, the, the pigment responsible for the red colour, myoglobin, similar to us, um, becomes oxymyoglobin, and, and it becomes that bright cherry red colour. And so they look at that and they feel for the oil, and they get a feeling for the quality and the shelf life that that fish will, will yield um, once they cut it up and send it to the sushi restaurant. And so they'll bid accordingly based on that grading system. So it looks like a mystery. It certainly is a little bit. They, always, they use all these different codes um, as well as grades. Um, and that was part of my research in uh, Port Lincoln back in 1999. The Skidgy fish market is both the zenith and a fortress of seafood knowledge. Almost impenetrable to outsiders, those that have spent time within the hallowed walls inevitably have a library of intriguing and amazing stories. One of the things that struck me early on in the piece was that the old boys would, uh, a couple of them would say that Skiji Fish Market isn't the uh, biggest fish market in Japan, that Narita Airport is, is the biggest fish market. And when you go out to the airport and you see uh, all these tuna coffins, they call them, the boxes that carry the tuna, um, laid out for the grading. Uh, it's pretty impressive. And, and that, that really impressed upon me, the importance of logistics um, and how we can you know, use platforms to disrupt the supply chain somewhat uh, for the better. Um, uh, yeah, I used to get up at uh, 1 a.m. Uh, at Tokyo University of Fisheries and uh, ride the uh, CRC bicycle, my research bicycle, uh, into the fish markets and, and take all these measurements and, and whatnot of, from the fish. We were looking at ways to more digitally grade the quality because we, you know, as, as a tuna farming industry, we wanted to know what impact the towing, the, the, the husbandry, the feeds, the harvest strategies had on the quality of the product because that was a huge cost to us. And we wanted to look at what was, you know, negatively, positively or neutrally impacting the quality of the product. So we needed a way to measure it because it was all just lines and squiggles by the Japanese graders that we didn't understand. And so I was using digital cameras and those sorts of things to take photographs and measurements and various different tools. And the wholesalers used to laugh at me like I was, I was crazy. Um, um, thankfully, uh, it wasn't so crazy. I, I, I got their grades for quality pre-auction and and then I showed them the correlation between the grades and this uh, RGB ratio so it was the red green and blue and, and it was the red color over the the green plus the blue value and it was perfectly correlated to their quality grades and the price grades 
and the looks on their faces <laughs> show them this data. Um, of course, they're the gold standard that we need to calibrate this equipment to, so they never, they'll never go away. Um, but, yeah, that was a pretty funny moment. The bluefin tuna is a truly remarkable animal. They are the largest tunas and can live up to 50 years. They migrate across all oceans and can dive deeper than 1,000 metres. A lot of people don't realise that a, a northern bluefin tuna uh, gets to up to four metres in length uh, and 700 kilograms. Most people think of tuna, they think of the smaller fish that goes into the tent. They don't realise that these are animals that live for 40 years. Um, that to just maintain basic metabolism, they've got to move at four metres per second if they're four metres uh, in, in length, um, which is very fast. Um, that, you know, each one of them is, is unique, uh, that they spend their lives sort of uh, traversing the oceans and circumnavigating the globe thousands of kilometres in a year, backwards and forwards between the, the west coast of the United States and, and, and the Sea of Japan and, um, you know, you think about what that animal through those years has seen and what it's eaten. Um, it's, it's unique. Uh, and every slice of it, because it varies longitudinally and uh, cross-sectionally, is unique. So when you're eating something like that, you just don't wolf it down. you really got to think about how amazing the animal is. Um, and sort of once you have a, a sort of a respect for the animal, uh, then you want to protect it. Uh, and I think that's, uh, for me, that's something that I like to promote when I talk about uh, tuna, especially the bluefin tuna, um, that it is something that's really worthy of our respect and, and also our protection. Sashimi is just sashimi, right? Or wrong? You never really know how many different animals can be eaten raw until you've truly explored the rabbit hole that is the sashimi realm. Just like beef, pork or lamb, there is similarly a myriad of cuts when it comes to tuna even within the same fish. Maximising the use of all the different muscles in a tuna, aside from delivering an incredible spectrum of flavours and textures, is an imperative in maximising the total utilisation of each fish and delivering sustainability to the species. Yeah, so uh, there, there's three main parts that most people are probably familiar with. Um, uh, in, in the West, we often just refer to tuna as magro. Um and it's just the red part of the fish that we normally eat. Uh, Mago just means tuna, but the actual red piece of the tuna meat, um, which is the, uh, the the muscle really that, that drives the animal, uh, is called akami, which literally means red meat. And then uh, just like uh, myself, um, as they get older, they put on weight around the midriff and around the belly. And on the midriff side, it's chutoro. Uh, a lot of people think that might mean middle fat. Uh, and then on the belly, the, it's called otoro, which translates really as uh, big fat. But toro is actually, um, it means it comes from the verb torokiru, which means to melt. So it means big melt and middle melt. And it's, the, it's that fat content that gives it that feel of melting in the mouth. Um, and that's the most valuable piece now, of course, on, on those sort of northern bluefin and southern bluefin tuna species. Um, there are many, many different parts uh, to a tuna. There's the, the head meat, the cheek meat. Um, there's the, the different parts, but even within the belly fat itself, 
the sunazuru, if you like, is the, is the part where the belly, it, it literally translated as rubbing on sand. So if the, if the fish was sort of swimming too close to the sand, that's the first bit that would hit the uh, sand. So they have this amazing sort of food culture built in and around the different parts uh, of a tuna, uh, you know, fish that, that we eat. Um, and, and, you know, they really are very different based on the season, um, what they're eating, um, where they're migrating. And uh, the, the big-eyed tuna have uh, a, a really deep cherry red. They um, come up to the full moon. You, you catch big-eyed tuna one week before and one week after the full moon. Um, but because it dives down deeper, it has a cold, it has a cold, it's in colder water. It has this sort of toro as well. So there's a whole culture in and around it, and, and it varies up and down the coast of Japan, and different names for the fish as well, um, and, and the and the cuisine that they've got. It's, it's fascinating, actually. If I were trapped in one city and had to eat one nation's cuisine for the rest of my life, it would be Japan. So said the travelling gourmand, Anthony Bourdain. The level of detail in every aspect of culinary appreciation in Japan is without peer. No better reflection of this is in the determination of the sushi-san in his selection, handling and presentation of tuna and his never-ending quest to be the best. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> um, it, was, uh, it was incredible when I first went there and, and, and got to see uh, the culture and, and uh, just the... Uh, different parts of the tuna and um to give you an example one of the things that did surprise me was uh seeing a fish that was a month old uh at skiji um it you know it'd come out of the water in a cold temperature it'd been looked after killed properly um and then transported properly and then stored properly Uh, and they call it jukase uh, in japanese and it's it refers to aging and and that's a process where the the fish um Basically, the the, the inosine monophosphate, which is uh, the monosodium glutamate, if you like, of of uh, tuna flesh or fish flesh, and it's uh, it's really highly correlated to umami. That peaks, but at the same time, these off um, flavors start to develop. But it gives it a, a much more depth of of flavor profile, um, and it's it's amazing how that happens and. Similar to cognac, as explained to me, where a 60-year-old cognac is fully oxidised and off, but they only use there's only five percent left in the barrel after 60 years. But they just use drops of it and they marry it with these younger years, and it gives us some incredible flavour profile. Um, so, uh, you know, that sort of stuff just sort of blew me away um, when I first went there, and it was I think I, I put that in my thesis, um, and I wish that in Australia that we could start to look at all the various species that we have that sort of open themselves up to that sort of maturation and, and putting them between um, uh, kombu, the kelp, using the polysaccharides, polysaccharides of the kelp to preserve it, but to also mature it and, and bring out these more complex flavour profiles and, and textures that, you know, you wouldn't otherwise have if you just threw it in a pan after a couple of days. Yeah, I, I, I did take the Director General of uh, the Worldwide Fund for Nature uh, for some northern bluefin tuna at a time where uh, WWF was certainly very much against it. Um, they're very open gentlemen uh, to learning and understanding um, how important the, the fish 
is to the Japanese. And and so uh, it was great to take him there and, and, and show him that. But, um, yeah, I, I just... I've had some amazing fish. Uh, I've had situations where you're, you know, you're eating fish that's from uh, Orma or Toy, um, and if you ask the uh, wholesalers, they'll have a different opinion on which is the best quality fish. Um, and even some of the wholesalers, even though they're sort of married to Northern Bluefin tuna through uh, it's an arranged marriage, culturally arranged marriage, because northern bluefin tuna is known as Hon Maguro, and it's the same Hon that's in Nihon, which means Japan. Um, but you'll have some of them say some, some of the southern bluefin tuna at certain times of the year from certain parts of the ocean uh, comparable. Um, southern bluefin tuna, according to the Japanese, has sanmi, which is like a, an acidity, which leans itself to be you know, eaten with uh, white wine, for example. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I have I had some amazing experiences eating some amazing fish with some amazing people and, uh, uh, yeah, many of them. <laughs> In order to manage and conserve a seafood resource requires a deep knowledge about the resource itself, where it breeds, when it breeds, how much it breeds and where it travels through its life. Whilst this might seem like a simple task when discussing farmed fish, born in a hatchery and raised in a pond, for a migratory species like tuna, and in particular the far-roaming bluefin tuna, this not only requires extensive research, but multi-nation collaboration with the tuna oblivious to borders, exclusive economic zones or marine jurisdictions. The Commission for the Conservation of Southern Bluefin Tuna is an intergovernmental organisation responsible for the management of southern bluefin tuna across the supply chain from catching, trading and management. The CCSBT's objective is to ensure, through appropriate management, the conservation and optimum utilisation of the southern bluefin tuna. The use of next generation science and monitoring is the basis of building strong and sustainable futures for the southern bluefin tuna. Well, uh, being a migratory species, it really does require collaboration, uh, intergovernmental agreements, obviously, are are what these regional fisheries management organisations are all about. Um, So it's not just about coming together and signing a a document or an agreement. It's really about following up and manning up. And the the CCSBT is the only single species uh, regional fisheries management organisation. It's the Commission for the Conservation of Southern Bluefin Tuna. It is very difficult. High seas, migratory fish, high value, um, and, and, you know, first age of reproduction for these species can be around six, seven, eight years before they start reproducing, uh, and they can live to, you know, 40, 50 years. So, so it, it is a challenge. It just it requires, uh, you know, these countries to come together and then make commitments and follow up on it. Um, and, and they've got to come together and they've got to invest in the research uh, to make sure that um, or to help ensure that they're, they're tracking in the right direction when it comes down to recovery, having a proper management plan in place um, and, and really, you know, coming to agreement on the science and, and then uh, moving forward on that. I think the other thing too is the application of uh, technology like DNA tracing uh, is important. I was 
I did a project called Tuna CSI, sort of crime scene investigation, because when I was doing my PhD, there's a gentleman called a Professor Lee Burgoyne at Flinders University who developed a technology to trap the DNA in, in a card um, that can be analysed, computer shelf sort of stable and can be analysed later. Um, I was using that in its developmental stages on Skiji, um, getting DNA from tuna. Uh, one of the things I realised then was that the Australian researchers uh, through this close kin project were looking at the DNA structures of the adult stock and the juvenile stocks. And it was a project called Close Kin. And they used parent-offspring pairing. Basically, it was like how interrelated are the tuna uh, populations that they're sampling it's, it's like if, if you're walking through a village, you're going to see more people that are related to one another. If you're walking through a city, you're going to see less people that are related to one another. So that gives you an indication of whether you're dealing with a city-sized population versus, say, a, uh, a village-sized population. And um, so, you know, with that, they also found 30 different microsatellite markers on the DNA where the individual fish were varying. And I realised that with that technology, we could track a piece of sushi uh, or sashimi from a restaurant all the way back to the actual individual fish that it came from. Um, and it's just, it was like we don't know what it codes for. It's like the, the blue eyes, the, the brown hair of Gina, but we don't, we don't know. But um, it did vary by individual, and that was a very powerful tool because at the end of the day um, – you're not going to invest in policing if you can't get a conviction, and that technology can get us a conviction. So that technology needs to be adopted by the CCSBT. Um, each fish needs to be numbered um, and, and randomly sampled to make sure that, you know, the number on the fish, uh, sorry, the number on the uh, sort of uh, the, the piece of sushi, if you like, or, the, or the, the fillet that the sushi came from matches the, the number of the fish that, uh, that it's purported to come from in terms of the fishery or the uh, ranching industry. Alastair Douglas is a scientist with a mission. He has a staunch belief that conservation is best driven when there is a commercial imperative to not merely support but to drive science. His business, Each Mile Technologies, understands that many of the social, financial and environmental problems we are facing as a global seafood society can be traced back to the complex and sometimes corrupt systems that have evolved to bring us our seafood. The Each Mile mission is to use technology to transform the global supply chains to be more sustainable, responsible and profitable. Interestingly, they exist as a for-profit entity and whilst they openly claim that their focus will never be profit alone, the basis for their business is using market forces and increased transparency to drive up quality of tuna and change behaviours for good. Yeah, so each mile's uh, basically trying to develop and deploy technologies through supply chains, and, and obviously our expertise is uh, mostly seafood. Uh, it's really about how, how do we get and, and achieve traceability um, and we've really focused on developing nations uh, and basically because they, they really can't uh, afford to pay for traceability systems and nor really they should. Um, you know, they provide us with our fish. Um, and then we also expect them to, prov- you know, 
provide us with traceability and everything's been a bit of an externality over the, the last two, three, four decades where we've used the powerful US or Australian dollar to buy fish from um, you know, these developing nation fishers and farmers. Um, and, and, and Australia imports 70% of its seafood. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we sit there and we talk about how sustainable and green and how you should be like us. Uh, yet we, the food, 70% of our seafood is from overseas. Um, so we need to help them. Uh, and the market needs to pay for these systems. They need to pay for the traceability data. And so we came up with a blockchain system with a token that allows that to happen. Uh, so that you can, you can not only when you buy the fish, you can pay for the data. Um, that shows or helps show that it's come from a, a source that's legal, reported and regulated, uh, that the product is uh, authentic um, and that it's safe uh, and, and adherence to any sort of sustainability or responsibility standards that it reports to be. Uh, so, you know, I think it's our responsibility to, to provide the incentive to and the technologies to these fishers and farmers that provide us with our, with our seafood fishers and farmers that provide our seafood. So that's what we're doing at each mile. At present, 89% of global wild fish stocks are overfished or being fully exploited, 50% of seafood is thrown away, and as much as 60% of the seafood we take from the ocean is discarded, lost or wasted in supply chains. Illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing accounts for more than 700 kilos of stolen seafood each and every second. The seafood industry is a major commodity market that is mostly still using outdated and inefficient processes to buy and sell product. Alistair and his team at Each Mile have been working to harness the power of digital trading and blockchain such that the flow of information moves from buyers to sellers in supply chains, rewarding those who make the extra effort to capture and communicate data. For hotels, restaurants and retailers, this delivers the accuracy and transparency they are seeking to know where, when, and by who the seafood that they use comes from. Well, I think that, um, you know, obviously the pandemic has shown that a lot more people are using platforms uh, to purchase fish, online platforms. Uh, there's certainly an increase in the demand for seafood, uh, given that it's a lot healthier um, than other sources of protein and micronutrient. I think it's also, when done well, it's more sustainable. What people don't realise is, is that and aquatic animals and plants uh, float. They don't have to invest energy uh, into a stem, uh, you know, a trunk or a, a skeleton as much. Um, and so they're very, very uh, efficient at converting, um, you know, energy into, into feed uh, and food for us. So, um, yeah, there's a lot more demand for it. Uh, the, the hard part is obviously... With, with with trading platforms, we we often buy things that are what, what are considered search goods, um, and they're goods that are easily you can demonstrate compliance to a particular standard. So if you're going to go buy a, a computer, um, you know it's got 16 gigabyte of memory, um, you know, and its processes at uh, two gigahertz, whatever it is, and when it gets to you. It's going to do that. It's not going to deteriorate over time. Um, it's not going to go from 16 gigabyte to 15 gigabyte, 14 gigabyte, because obviously fish and seafood are perishable. Um, 
And so the challenge on platforms is that how do we communicate what the quality will look like? What's a, how can we be predictive, if you like, uh, about the quality of the product as it were, what it will look like when it gets to the, the customer, especially if they're overseas? So these are the sorts of challenges, but technology can help us with that. Um, we, we can we can assess uh, a product's freshness and, and sort of say and put it down to a number of ice days and so that you'll have seven ice days of freshness when it gets to you in Shanghai, for example. And once once people sort of trust those technologies, um, then you, the whole platform sort of disruption comes into the seafood supply chain. And, and that's something that and those sorts of efficiencies um, I, I'd like to see implemented into the seafood industry. You know, the, the, the industry in Australia uh, it has been somewhat decimated. Uh, elements of the industry have been decimated. Um, Australia... Essentially, uh, 84% of its exports uh, have left on aeroplanes in terms of value. And you know, those aeroplanes haven't been flying. So a lot of our high-value species, um, you know, the industries have really been hurt um, by the pandemic. Uh, you know, 94% of our imports are frozen that comes in. So we, we've got a, a significant weakness there. So... We, we need to start investing in value-adding technologies uh, and approaches and consolidation of the industry a little bit, help the fishermen. Um, we need to democratise access to quota so that the, the fishermen and the crew and everyone's being looked after and incentivised better, I think. Um, the captains, the boat owners are all coming together. And then how do we sort of have these sort of uh, cooperative value-adding structures and uh, in place to, to then value out Australian seafood for Australians and also for the, the overseas markets um, because it really does require economies of scale, a great deal of coordination. How do we then implement best practices, total quality management, those sorts of things, and really value out our seafood um, and get the most out of it? Um, so, you know, as challenging as that is, I think it's something that we have to do and it's something that you know really excites me. And, of course, on the tuna side, that's what I'm focusing on going forward. Dr Alastair Douglas's mission is to combine science, conservation, IT and his love of tuna for the benefit of all. His unique skills across the worlds of fishing, fisheries management, conservation, fish trading and, importantly, cuisine allow him a unique perspective on how to deliver sustainable fisheries into the future. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtales Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtalespodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.